0: there I was, surrounded by my colleagues. The project uh, was running late and now it was running over budget as well. Uh, And as I was uh, standing there and we were together trying to work out what are we going to say to our clients at the meeting we had the next morning all sorts of ideas uh, kept going around. I mean, an all-nighter wouldn't fix the problem on this, in this scenario uh, as often as it did. Uh, and so what were we going to do? And they came up with lots and lots of excuses we could give the clients. Or let's call it a spade a spade. Lies that we could tell uh, the clients about why we were running late and had failed to deliver. Now, the honest thing is we'd just taken on too much work and we couldn't possibly deliver all the projects uh, that we had done. But we... That was not what we were going to go with. And as I was sitting listening to this discussion, uh, I thought, well, I'm the one who's got to go and deliver this news. Suddenly, my hands felt a bit sweaty. i got an uneasy feeling in my stomach. Am I going to go and lie to our clients on behalf of the company just to save some face? It's temptation. There is temptation in the everyday. Or or another example, um, some of our teenagers around. When I was a a teenager, I can't remember exactly when this happened. Um, It certainly started off as just a group of us having a laugh with uh, a classmate. But I can't remember, at some point it definitely changed from a little bit of banter to a little bit of bullying. And am I going to continue carrying on, joining in with that mocking at that point? Temptation. It's all around us, isn't it? It's something that Sarah gave us some examples from the, from the chocolate to the speeding. Um, as we are driving around, you know, how easy is it to see 30 and think, oh, 32 is fine. Temptation. Just a few examples of where it comes. And this passage shows us that temptation is real. But not only that it's real, Jesus understands it. Jesus sympathizes with us in our temptation. You know, we don't have a God who is completely distant from us. We have a God who is, li- who is like us in human form. He's experienced what we've experienced. He knows what it's like. Uh, and at the very least, this passage that we've just had uh, read to us shows us and proves to us Jesus' humanity. But I want to sh- say that it shows us more than just that he's human. It shows that he is the only faithful human. See, Matthew is writing uh, this gospel to show how Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament, even the little, even the little bits. And so he's both reminding us of how uh, Jesus is better than anything else that's been before, but also how he's the, the type of, uh, of king that was promised. So we're going to think about those two things this morning. And firstly... Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. Now, to see this, it helps to spot a pattern uh, in the beginning of Matthew's Gospel that is also in the first half of Exodus. Now, both of these books, as Steve told us last week, Matthew focuses on God uh, with us. It's where he starts, where he ends. Uh, And that's the great climax of Exodus in chapter 40. God being with his people. And so there's this pattern that goes through. So if you remember back to Exodus... Uh, last term. Um, it went a bit like this. So there was Pharaoh wanting to kill uh, all the children, all the Israelite children, uh, and God protecting his, his chosen one, in this case Moses. Uh, and then after the terrible, terrifying ten plagues, then the people of uh, Israel leave Egypt by crossing through the water of the Red Sea, you know, that great water parting as two pillars as they walk through on dry ground. They are then, as they get safe to the other side, they are tested in the wilderness, both them being tested by God for their faithfulness, uh, and God um, testing them to see if they'll listen to his words. And then as they get to Mount Sinai, they are given the law. So there is a pattern of the first half of Exodus. Now, uh, follow that through with the first bit of Matthew. So Matthew starts with the killing of children um, in Bethlehem, in this case. But God protects his chosen one, Jesus. Uh, Then Jesus and his family go to Egypt, but then leave Egypt, as the prophecy would say. Then Jesus uh, begins his ministry by the baptism of water, going through the water. Then, as we've just read, he is tested in the wilderness. Instead of 40 years, 40 days. And then he'll go on to give the Sermon on the Mount. His retelling of the law, the extent and the fulfilment of law. There is the same pattern as we go through. And so as we focus here on the testing in the wilderness, we're seeing how Israel, in the wilderness, they gave in to their temptation. They grumbled, they complained, uh, they wanted at one point to return back to Egypt because they thought they'd be better off there. Even though God had rescued them from slavery, even though he'd shown them what sort of God he was, there they were complaining about him. They failed. They were unfaithful. But Jesus, as we've just read, he didn't give in to the temptations. He faced those similar battles, but he succeeded. He remained faithful to his father. And although he was hungry, he didn't grumble. Although he was hungry, he didn't ask his father for food. He was faithful. Uh, And so let's think about Jesus' success. We'll need Matthew 4 open for this. It's page 967 if you've closed your Bibles or if you want to warm your fingers up um, for a few minutes flicking around. Um, See, Jesus' success isn't just that he's better than Israel. It shows the sort of king that he is. Um, As we said, Matthew has just um, uh, recorded the baptism. You can see it there in in Matthew chapter 3 of Jesus. Jesus. Uh, In verse 2, John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so as we're reading through this gospel for the first time, we've had God with us. We've had the kingdom of heaven near. The question in your mind has got to be, well, what sort of king is going to come that will bring heaven near? You know, the Israel, many of the Israelites were expecting this kind of swashbuckling uh, saviour who would remove those nasty uh, Romans and restore the glory of, uh, of Israel. You know, their great land back. A Messiah who'd be this kind of supernatural power that would lead them through. But, but straight after the words that are recorded, This is my son whom I love. With, ye, with him I am well pleased. Matthew Shows us Jesus going into the wilderness. Not a sign of strength, but a sign of faithfulness. And and look at verse 1 of chapter 4. This is no accident that Jesus is in the wilderness. He's led there by the Spirit to be tempted. Now this isn't God being cruel. This is God... um, Allowing Jesus to learn obedience, as Hebrews calls it. To show who he is. Just as Israel was supposed to learn obedience by being in the wilderness, Jesus shows what is there. And what's at stake for him being obedient. Because there is something bigger than what the devil offers. The devil keeps coming. But Jesus has a bigger and better plan. See, Jesus' success... Um, is more than physical help. That's the first temptation in verses 2 to 4. Have a look at it with me. Uh, Verse 2, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, I'm I'm guessing you are. I mean, I'm hungry after 40 minutes. So 40 days and 40 nights, Uh, he was hungry. And so verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, this must have been tempting. Jesus, Jesus was hungry. 40 hot days, 40 cold nights in that bleak wilderness. Uh, as he looks around uh, through the pains of hunger, all he sees is, is sand uh, and a few hills. You know, there's no Curry Mile. There's no Aldi, There's not even a Tesco Express where you can just pop along to and get a bit of food. Uh, it's a lonely place. And don't we feel more hungry when we're alone? Let alone after 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, and of course, you know, there's some stones lying down there for him. He could have turned them into bread. You now he feeds 5,000 people with just a few loaves um, later on. And it would satisfy his hunger. But that's not why he's there. He's there to remain obedient to his father, not to the devil's schemes. So look at verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. As I say, Israel's hunger in the wilderness was supposed to teach them this dependence on God, uh, which they failed. But Jesus, can you see how he he takes this truth and lives by it? Uh, And if you think about it, um, how many people in this world today are living by bread alone? They they, they seem to be living. They seem to have everything that they want. But that's not where they're destined. And yet how many people in this world are struggling to find bread to live on? But they have the word of God and have a fuller life than any of the people who have plenty. Yes, we need that uh, physical Uh, food to keep us going but we can't just let the physical rule we need the spiritual is more important we need the physical for this world but we need the spiritual to keep us going into eternity and so jesus could have come of course he could have come and just provided for his own physical need or or everyone's physical needs but that's not going to solve the biggest problem is it it's not going to solve the problem that lasts into eternity. There is something far more important. And so for us, it's important that we don't let the physical uh, mean that we miss out on the spiritual. The physical can't miss out on the spiritual. Don't let uh, those day to needs, as important as they are, and we do need to deal with them, but don't let them affect us so much Though we miss out the thing that we need to last us into eternity, so Jesus came for more than physical help, and He came came for more than uh, so He came for more than physical uh, help, more for super, more than supernatural help. See, next the devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem and places Him on the highest point uh, in the temple. And apparently there's a huge height between the highest point of the temple and the bottom of the ravine that was below it. You know, this is, we're talking about a big uh, gap. Uh, and so the devil puts him there and says in verse 6, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. See, now the, the devil is coming, and he's trying to use Scripture to convince Jesus. Yeah, God isn't going to let his son die. Just throw yourself down, let the angels catch him, catch you. It's kind of, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, Superman swooping in whenever Lois Lane is falling off a building. You know, just always there when, you, when he's needed. But Jesus knows what's going on. See, this isn't the way that Psalm 91, which is the bit that the devil quotes... Is supposed to be used. The devil is manipulating the scriptures um, to entice Jesus to sin, just as he still does today. <laughs> Psalm 91 is a promise uh, by God to help his people who suffer. But that must be balanced with these other pass- uh, passages that we see all around the Bible that Christians will suffer. Uh, and it's certainly uh, not a command to deliberately put yourself in harm's way to see if God will come and help you. That's what the devil's asking Jesus to do. And so Jesus responds, verse 7. Jesus answers him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is not going to do what the devil wants. I mean, of course he could. He could could have thrown himself and angels could have come. But, and as we see at the very end of, uh, in verse 11, they do come at the end. But that wasn't his plan now. He needed to go through and follow in complete unity with the Father the plan that they had arranged. Not testing him, not working against the Father, but with this divine plan that they had come up with that must be completed. So it's not just supernatural help. Uh, And Jesus' success is more than just a conquering power. See, here's the final temptation uh, that we come to. The devil is showing Jesus the whole world. Now, most likely it's just some sort of supernatural uh, vision. And it's showing the world in all its splendor. And the devil says, you can have all this if you just worship me. Now, of course, that's where Jesus is supposed to be, isn't it? Reigning over the whole world. Uh, it's where he deserves to be. But in what the devil says, there's a huge problem. You see, in verse eight, the devil shows the kingdoms in all their splendour. He's cleverly masking a problem. See, it's a bit like someone who goes to buy a car. Um, you're going to buy a car, and, and you walk up to the car, and it's all lovely, shiny, and new on, the, uh, really shiny on the outside. You have a look at it, and he's like, "Oh yeah, quite like that. It's got that nice sort of sporty look to it." You climb in, you turn the key ignition to start the engine, and it just splutters, uh, and nothing happens. The car suddenly, as much as it looks good on the outside, the car's suddenly pointless and useless, isn't it? Uh, and this is what the devil is doing. He's showing the outward splendor of all the kingdoms of the world, but he's hiding the problem that's there under the bonnet, the problem of Sin. And so if, he, if Jesus had come and reigned over the world in the way the devil is offering, it would become pointless, because he wouldn't deal with the sin. Sure, he would be, uh, it would be easier than suffering on the cross. But even at the start of his ministry, Jesus knows that's the exact reason he's come, to, he's come for. It's the spiritual need that his, the first temptation told us. It's the great plan That he has with his father, as the second temptation showed us. It's to deal with sin. And so, in verse 10, he finally tells the devil where to go. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. And so, for the third time as we go through, Jesus uses scripture uh, to fight off the devil, fight off that temptation. And actually throughout, hasn't he? He's, he's done that. He hasn't used anything in his fight with temptation that we don't already have. He had the Spirit with him. He had Scripture. And as believers, we have both. So as real as Satan is, and this passage tells us that he's real, and as real as our spiritual battle is, and it is real, we too have the Spirit and Scripture to fight off that temptation. And when it comes, and can I just say, temptation itself isn't sin. Sin is what happens when we give in to temptation. So Jesus never sinned. But when, uh, when that temptation, we can stand firm with the Spirit and with Scripture and say, worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. It's what Jesus did. It's the example he gives to us. Um, and he did it absolutely faithfully to his father, never putting a foot, never putting a thought wrong. He succeeded where Israel failed. I can also say he succeeded where we fail. Jesus succeeds for you. Because if we're honest, we're often more like Israel than we are Jesus. We give in to temptation rather than fight it. Of those examples that I was giving at the start, some of them uh, I've given into temptation. Some of them I haven't, by God's grace, but some of them I have. I'm not going to tell you which, which ones I have. But I'm sure as we're sitting here, we can all think times where we've failed. We've, we've been tempted and we've just not, we've given up on the fight. But if you're feeling guilty about that, then look to Jesus, We fail, but that's precisely why he came. He came to deal with that sin, that, that greatest spiritual problem we could have. Uh, th- and that's the plan that Jesus came up with his father, to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven that sin. See, Jesus didn't just lead the perfect life so that he could show us who he is. He lived the perfect life so he could be the perfect saviour. Only a perfect sacrifice would do in this plan. And this perfect sacrifice not only means that at the cross do we get forgiveness but we also get Jesus' righteousness given to us. His perfect record is now ours. So all the times that he didn't give in to temptation, all the times he perfectly followed God's uh, law, uh, all the times he was in unity with the Father, as we accept Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, God looks at us. He doesn't see sin. He sees Jesus. And as one writer says, that means now that God regards us in the identical way he does Christ. The Father treats us in exactly the same way as he does his own eternal and beloved Son. Can you get your head around that? I know that I mess up. I know that I'm going to continue to mess up. But God looks at us and he sees Jesus. That, that faithful, suffering servant. And it's what we're going to remember, isn't it, in a moment. As so we come around the Lord's table, Jesus went through that for us. He was faithful. And he's brought us to a place where we are faithful. And we will live into eternity being faithful. Because he is faithful for us. That's how God sees us now. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus' faithfulness. Forgive us that we don't live in the ways that you want us to. But Lord, thank you that because of his death and his resurrection... That forgiveness is ours, and that perfect record is ours. So that when you look at us, you see Jesus. Amen.